Our Bible reading today is from 2 Corinthians 10, and it's on page 1028. So if you need a church Bible, you might need to let one of the ushers know. Now I, Paul, myself, appeal to you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble among you in person, but hold toward you when absent. I beg you that when I am present, I will not need to be bold with the confidence by which I plan to challenge certain people who think we are behaving according to the flesh. For although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh, since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. We demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. And we are ready to punish any disobedience once your obedience is complete. Look at what is obvious. If anything is confident that it belongs to Christ, let me remind himself of this. Just as he belongs to Christ, so do we. For if I boast a little too much about our authority which the Lord gave for building you up and not for tearing you down. I will not be put to shame. I don't want to seem as though I am trying to terrify you with my letters. For it is said, his letters are weighty and powerful, but his physical presence is weak and his public speaking amounts to nothing. Let such a person consider this. What we are in our letters when we are absent we will also be in our actions when we are present. For we don't dare classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves, but in measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves to themselves, they lack understanding. We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but according to the measure of the area of ministry that God has assigned to us, which reaches even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as if had not reached you since we have come to you with the gospel of Christ. We are not boasting beyond measure about other people's labours. On the contrary, we have the hope that as your faith increases, our area of ministry will be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel to the regions beyond you without boasting about what has already been done in someone else's area of ministry. So let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one commending himself who is approved, but the one the Lord commends. Please keep that passage open in front of you. Get rid of that. Uh, And you'll find an outline of where we're going in your handout this morning. Hopefully that will help you follow along. Uh, How about I pray for us as we delve into this chapter? Let me pray. Our God and Father, we thank and praise you that you speak to us through your word so that we can know you and consequently live as you desire. We ask as we consider how to be discerning this morning that you will open our hearts and minds by your spirit so that we might know your gospel truth 
and truly perceive what is in front of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, if there is one ability I would love God to lavish on me, it is the ability to be more discerning. Uh, Would you say you're a discerning person? Are you the sort of person who can read a situation and act wisely and appropriately? Uh, We actually need to be discerning in many areas of our lives. Uh, With an election called, we really need to be discerning about what we're hearing about various policies that are put out there, don't we? Uh, As Rochelle and I consider how to guide and grow our teenagers, uh, I, I have a real sense of urgency that they might be discerning and, say, make wise choices. Uh, I know this is primarily because when I was their age, uh, and as I reflect back on my childhood, I don't think I was very discerning. I can think of many situations that I just thought, oh, this is, the decisions that are being made are so unjust. It's not right. Uh, I wish I was promoted in this sporting team or I got uh, into a better class or something, but it's actually, I couldn't perceive that the teachers had a better idea of where I should be placed in, in various activities. And even as adults, we need to continue growing in our ability to be discerning, particularly when we're speaking about Jesus. Uh, have you ever been in one of those situations where it's really hard to comprehend or to know how someone is receiving the news about Jesus? You're speaking to them. What are they making of what we're saying? Uh, I likewise find it hard in, in pastoral situations to perceive emotions. I'm a bloke. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't read emotions in the same way that Rochelle can. Uh, so and I can't understand the stresses people are facing unless they actually say them directly to me. I find that terribly hard to discern. Now, the term discernment is, isn't excessively used in Scripture, but it is actually, the idea is there, and it is the foundation for making wise decisions. Uh, the New Testament writers particularly encourage the churches to be discerning because of the ever-present reality of false teachers. Uh, for example, in his first speech to the elders, his final speech to the church elders in Ephesus, Paul tells them, and this is from Acts 20, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up, even from your own number, and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. Therefore, be on the alert. Remember that night and day for three years, I never stopped warning each of you with tears. Paul calls them to be alert, to remember his teacher, teaching. That is the call to be discerning. And did you hear what Paul said such false teachers are trying to challenge? Where they're trying to distort the truth. Friends, God has given us his gospel truth. It is the truth by which we know him. It is the truth by which we uh, know Jesus and our sal- we have salvation and is the truth which guides us in living as he desires. 
So can you perceive the danger we face when the gospel truth is distorted? Can you see the importance of being discerning, especially when God's truth is being twisted for a false teacher's personal gain? As we read this section of 2 Corinthians, we're starting in the final section here in chapters 10 to 13, Paul finally addresses the source of many issues in the church. It's that problem of false teachers who are distorting the truth. Uh, Paul has mentioned these these certain people beforehand. You might remember uh, how Paul uh, mentioned in chapter 3 how certain people had come with letters of recommendation uh, to commend themselves. Uh, you, you might remember that Paul didn't regard them very highly because they were more interested in pushing the Old Testament Israelite law than they were about glorifying Jesus Christ. Uh, in chapter 5, Paul also mentions how uh, such people were more concerned for outward appearances than what is on the heart. Hopefully that has got your brain cells ticking over. They've been in the letter and now Paul has... He's mentioned them briefly, but now he is going to tackle this issue, their influence on the church. And Paul is really calling on the Corinthians, uh, Corinthian believers to deal with these people. Now, you might be wondering, how do we deal with false teachers? Where would you start? Well, in the passage today, Paul teaches the Corinthians that the first step to dealing with false teachers is to be discerning. That is, we must be alert. We must consider the nature of our gospel truth and what's at stake. Uh, Secondly, we need to understand how the false teachers are operating, uh, such as how they undermine uh, the apostle's authority and they challenge him. And finally, Paul calls us to discern how false teachers operate and how they, they practice their falsehoods. So that's where we're heading today. Um, let's delve into this chapter. There is a lot in here and really Paul's going to unpack a lot of this stuff in the coming chapters. So my aim is to focus on the first seven verses, mention what's happening in the next, uh, the next chunk, basically knowing that Paul's going to come back to it and explain it in more depth a bit later. So you see here that Paul begins this final section of his letter with a plea. Uh, and notice how this, he speaks about an authority behind his plea. He writes in verse 1, Now I, Paul, myself, appeal to you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble among you in person, but bold towards you when absent. So Paul mentions himself. He's a very personal appeal here. He mentions, I, Paul, myself, and he talks about how he is humble among you. So it's it's a very personal appeal. It's emotional and intense, and the intensity will keep ramping up as we work through these chapters. His language gets pretty uh, extreme. And I love it in these chapters because Paul is so ironic. Uh, If you want to hear sarcasm, these are the chapters to go to in Scripture. Yet you see here that Paul makes an appeal based on the authority of Jesus Christ. Uh, Yet he highlights Jesus' meekness and gentleness. 
Uh, Paul could have lauded it over them. He could have mentioned how he is an apostle of the risen uh, Jesus Christ who has come to judge the living and the dead. That's how he begins his letter to the Galatians with full force of authority. Yet here he reminds the Corinthians he can't, that Jesus comes in meekness and gentleness. And we, we see that, how Jesus treated people he came across uh, in the Gospels. We see how he treated them gently and he guided them gently. Uh, of course, we ultimately see Jesus' meekness and gentleness on the cross as he willingly submits death for sinful humanity. Here Paul appeals to the Corinthians by the gentleness and meekness of Jesus Christ. It's an authoritative appeal, but why does he mention uh, Jesus' meekness? Uh, Why does he highlight that? Well, Paul likewise uh, admits here his humbleness when he's amongst them. Just as Jesus is meek and humble, Paul claims he too is humble. Uh, yet he acknowledges he's bold in his letters. We'll soon see that that phrase in this verse is actually part of the distorted truth that these certain people are bringing against Paul. Uh, They are essentially saying what Tom said before. Um, I'm not going to repeat the phrase. (laughs) They don't think highly of Paul, uh, and so this is a charge that they're bringing about against him. He's a humble guy when he's around you, but uh, in his letters, he's extremely bold. Yet we see from the start here that Paul is owning it. Listen to the content of Paul's plea in verse 2. He writes, I beg you that when I am present, I will not need to be bold with the confidence by which I plan to challenge certain people who think we are living according to the flesh. Now, I think we're supposed to see there's a bit of an irony happening here Uh, Paul pleads that he doesn't have to be bold and and harsh with them. He begs that he doesn't have to uh, rebuke them in anger when he comes and and have to challenge these certain false teachers when he arrives. Uh, Is Paul desperate to maintain his humble when present nature or actually is he having a go at them? Well, I want to suggest the latter is true. He's having a go at them. Uh, Because he'll say in chapter 13, at the very beginning of chapter 13, how he is coming. And he wants them, he wants these Corinthians to get organised now. He wants them to deal with the situation so that when he arrives, he doesn't have to be bold. He doesn't have to be angry when he comes. I remember listening to the news on the radio uh, just before the second. The second time the floods were coming to the Nepean and the Hawkesbury River area. Uh, it was announced on the radio that people could go to certain locations out west and pick up sandbags. Uh, they were handing them out to residents to prepare for another round of flooding. Uh, obviously, the wise course of action was to grab those sandbags and be prepared for the expected flood, which we now know came. Paul appeals and pleads with the the Corinthian church to deal with these certain people now. He pleads with them to be prepared to sort out these people before the flood of his boldness arrives and before he has to act boldly in disciplining them when he comes. 
So we see in verse 2 that these people are actually claiming that Paul lives according to the flesh. Now that term the flesh is often used in the New Testament to describe corrupt, sinful human behaviour. So it's, uh, it's an outrageous claim to make about Paul. If you read Paul's letters to the Galatians and the Roman churches, uh, you'll see how Paul actually teaches against walking according to the flesh. We should walk according to the Spirit. Yet here Paul again accepts the claim. He admits that he lives in this corrupt and sinful world. However, he doesn't engage in sin. He, he Rather, he is fighting against it. And so from verse 3, he explains to the Corinthians the nature of his gospel work. Uh, he is effectively opening their eyes to the truth of the situation. For when you perceive the situation clearly, you can understand what is at stake. Uh, for if they attack and undermine Paul's work, then it shows that they're actually undermining the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is what living according to the flesh, living in sin, truly is. What the Corinthians need to recognise and perceive is that there is this metaphorical battle being waged. And Paul refuses to use the tools or the weapons of this world in the fight. Uh, he will speak of this worldly weapons in the coming chapters. Uh, rather, Paul claims he's using God's powerful weapons. Verse 4. And what Paul is attacking here and destroying are arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God. That is, our knowledge of God is under attack. In Romans 1, Paul explains how this attack on the knowledge of God is the essence of sin. Listen to a selection of verses from Romans 1, which I think makes this point a bit clearer. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, since what can be known about God is evident among them, because God has shown it to them. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served what has been created rather than the Creator. Although they know God's just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die, they do not do them, but even applaud, applaud others who practice them. Paul says our knowledge of God is under attack. Uh, the world is at war against God and their, their weapons are the lies and the evil practices they engage in in order to suppress our knowledge of God. That is sin. These are the argument, uh, arguments and proud things that Paul is talking about here in 2 Corinthians 10. Paul is an active soldier in this war against sin, against the suppression of the knowledge of God. Now, the war metaphor in itself is really just highlighting and, and 
important tension, uh, how um, he's really explaining uh, how dangerous sin is and, if it, and how it corrupts at a very deep level. Sin is like that, an impenetrable fortress, he, using the metaphor here. Uh, uh, picture a hillside and there, right in the, in the centre of the mountainside, is a keep. You know, you've got all your walls and other things around it. Uh, it's defended. Paul isn't, in, Paul isn't interested in just knocking down a wall. He wants to get right into the heart of the stronghold. For if you can attack and destroy and completely obliterate the stronghold, you have complete victory. Paul is on about complete victory over sin. The Corinthians need to understand that Paul's gospel work is the battle against human sin. So what is the weapon that is made powerful by God that Paul is using in this spiritual conquest over sin? How does he take every sinful thought captive to Christ? Verse 5. Well, we've read in this letter numerous times the way that God completely transforms hard hearts and minds, how he captures thoughts. It is through the message of Jesus Christ. Jesus' substitutionary death for sinners. Remember he said back in chapter 5, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is how Paul demolishes arguments. He persuades people about Jesus and his victory over sin on the cross. Uh, we've heard about this treasure, uh, this message, numerous times in this letter. The, and the result of Paul's gospel work is that people become obedient to Christ. They acknowledge Jesus as their Lord and Saviour been completely transformed in their thinking so that they obey him. So let's take stock for a moment. Do you perceive what is at stake? Sin and corrupt humans with, uh, that is happening within God's gatherings are challenging our knowledge of God. They're twisting the truth. Now, Martin Luther and the Reformers are a good example of guys who saw how the Roman Catholic Church uh, had distorted the knowledge of God. As the Reformers returned to the Scriptures and, and learnt again this message about Jesus, they realised how Roman traditions held sinners captive in their sin. Uh, of course, High Anglican churches, uh, our own denomination, distort the message today in the same way. We see similar distortions in the prosperity gospel and much Pentecostal preaching, which Adrian was speaking about last week. Uh, it moves us away from a knowledge of God to a pop psychology uh, desire of self-promotion and, and self uh, advancement. So the message becomes more about how you can be the best person you can be, uh, grasping heavenly things now, heavenly blessings now, rather than dealing with sin in your life and knowing God. Do you understand why we need to be discerning of what we teach and what we listen to? 
how we need to discern that gospel truth. That's what's at stake. Paul is using the divine powerful weapon, the gospel, that message about Christ, to transform people's thinking, to change people's hard hearts, to bring our sinful wills in obedience to Jesus Christ. And and that is what you can expect when you gather here on Sundays in your gospel teams or when your kids are involved in forge camps or, or other ministries. Like Paul, we proclaim the message about Jesus to one another so that we can know God, that we can know our sin and repent of it and live in obedience to Jesus. So friends, now is the time for discernment. And and Paul states this in his own way at the beginning of verse 7. He says there, look at what is obvious. Uh, It's a very simple statement, but it packs a punch. Uh, look Look at what is in front of your face, is what it literally says. Or we might say, be discerning. If the sinful world around us is challenging our knowledge of God, tempting us to join them in, in praising those who engage in their sin or evil behaviour, then we need to be discerning. Look at what, our, what, look at what is obvious. Look at what is in, before us. We must continually consider how such people are challenging us. And in the next two paragraphs, Paul briefly outlines how these certain false teachers are challenging him. And then in verses 12 to 18, he shows the, how, the, how the Corinthians can discern their behaviour. Uh, again, as I said earlier, we're only going to look very briefly at these issues here. Paul is being pretty cryptic, uh, mainly because he's going to unpack things a bit later. Um, essentially, he wants us to discern the obvious issues, and and he'll dress them in what follows. So the first thing that Paul wants the Corinthians to discern is how these certain people claim to belong to Christ. Now, there isn't much to go on there, is there? Uh, Obviously, the Corinthians knew what the situation was more clearly. We will hopefully get understanding as we continue in these chapters The brief comment here, I suspect Paul is highlighting how these people have a secret or exclusive knowledge which leads to an exclusive relationship to Jesus. And really, they are claiming uh, to be special apostles is the foundation of it. And and we see this in in Paul's response. He only mentions that we actually all belong to to Jesus Christ, there's an equality there that we all share and, the, and he just highlights how the origin of his apostleship is from the Lord Jesus Christ which he uses to build people. Uh, but again, as we read into chapter 11, we'll see more completely how Paul addresses this exclusive belonging and apostleship issue. The second way that these false teachers challenge Paul is to highlight the inconsistency that was mentioned back in verse 1. Paul appears meek and mild in person, but an angry keyboard warrior when he writes his letters. Uh, See that challenge? Paul is being inconsistent. Uh, Publicly, he might not have crossed as a, a great orator, 
but, but probably friendly nevertheless. However, if he communicated you with, uh, if he was communicating with you in a letter, you'd probably feel the full force uh, of your, your hide being stripped. Well, we have Paul's letters and we can see how, yeah, sometimes they can be quite complicated and forceful. We can, we can see how weighty they are. But how does Paul respond to this claim of inconsistency in how he relates to people? Well, Paul takes up the challenge and he really says in verse, verse 11, it's like the classic line, go ahead, make my day. Uh, he is coming to Corinth and he will show how consistent he is between his letters and his presence. So Paul has called the Corinthians to look at what is before them, to be discerning. They're challenging and undermining Paul and his uh, authority and his teaching. Uh, Again, can you discern how such things undermine the gospel truth about God? If, If they can undermine Paul they can rip the mat out from underneath his teaching and, and they can therefore distort the truth of it. So that is what the Corinthians need to discern. If that's how they're treating Paul, how might we observe false teachers amongst us? Uh, in, and so in this final paragraph, verses 12 to 18, Paul highlights the inconsistencies to look for in false teachers and it primarily in revolves around this issue of boasting, as uh, Benny had a, a great illustration earlier. Firstly, and again, we're just going to shoot through it, there's a lot of things that I'm just going to brush over. And uh, Don Carson actually wrote a great book, um, Triumph, chapters 12, to, it's just on these chapters, 12 to 13, Don Carson, you can search for it at Kurong, uh, and he takes 10 chapters to explain this one chapter. So uh, we're going to do it in two, five minutes. So <laughs> read Don Carson's book, it's brilliant. Uh, so we see, firstly in verse 12, the false teacher is the one who commends himself and evaluates himself in comparison to others. And it might be foolish as we read these verses, but I think we can all fall into this trap of of self-promotion. So you see there in verse 12, Paul writes, For we don't dare classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves, but in measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves to themselves, they lack understanding. Comparing yourself to others, especially how they are serving, can be a real danger Uh, as it can be a garden bed for pride. But here Paul is essentially saying that these false false teachers not only stroll through that garden out the other side, but then they go on to commend themselves and promote themselves. They they don't see the danger. We must discern discern the false teacher who commends themselves. Uh, Let me offer you an unfortunate example... You might have seen the video uh, where the two televangelists, Kenneth Copeland and Jesse Duplantis, are discussing to each one, each, they're having this discussion, like a podcast or something like that, it's on, on, search for it on YouTube, uh, and they're discussing how each of them 
wants to upgrade their own jet plane. I, I don't know why, why uh, someone in ministry would need a jet plane. They claim to need these... Bit, like They're comparing what they have and what they, why they need better ones. In a sense, each of them is boasting about how big a false teacher they are. Uh, the false teacher is discerned by the way they commend themselves. In verses 13 to 15, Paul essentially calls such false teachers parasites. Uh, we know that Paul had been in Corinth for 18 months uh, proclaiming the gospel to them. He was the first to go. He had established the, the work there. Uh, Paul's work was given to him by God and, and, it, and it included proclaiming the gospel in that church, in the, to, that, to that city. Well, these false teachers are now boasting uh, that how great their work is or how great the church is all because of what they've done uh, even though that Paul had put in all the hard work. Um, do you see what's happening there? They're sort of parasites claiming to, to have done all the hard work themselves. Paul goes on in verse 15 and 16 extending this idea showing how his work seeks to grow and to expand the spread of the gospel. Uh, his desire is for churches like the one in Corinth to support him in this ministry. Uh, but Paul is suddenly highlighting how, subtly highlighting how false teachers uh, uh, bring a stagnation to the work of the gospel. They are more concerned about themselves and sucking out of it rather than spreading and, and taking the gospel out. Uh, sometimes we call that maintenance mode. The church just goes into a steady maintenance mode. I just ignore that term if it makes no sense. Um, the false teacher is the, the parasite who feeds off the church and is more concerned for sucking out of it rather than seeing the gospel go out and spread. That's another way to recognise the false teacher. Of course, this leads Paul to his fourth and climatic uh, criticism of, of these certain people. And it's this issue of boasting that has been undergirding uh, this section. Verses 17 and 18 are really a transition into the next chapter, uh, next few chapters. So it's worthwhile we understand uh, what Paul is saying here because when he ramps up the sarcasm and, and irony, we actually need to know the foundation that he's working off. So Paul has shown in verses 12 to 16 how false teachers boast about themselves, even though the gospel work has all been achieved by others. Now he states what godly boasting is. Uh, and he, quote, he starts here with a quote from Jeremiah 9. Let me just read this quote, uh, the verses around this quote to you. And, and it, uh, it, it becomes quite self-explanatory why Paul had chosen this verse. Uh, he, uh, Jeremiah writes, This is what Yahweh says, The wise person should not boast in his wisdom. The strong should not boast in his strength. The wealthy should not boast in his wealth. But the one who boasts should boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am Yahweh showing faithful love, justice and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things. This is Yahweh's declaration. And so Paul writes from verse 17, 
So let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one commending himself who is approved, but the one the Lord commends. Paul and Jeremiah point us to Yahweh, our covenant God. And the only thing worth, worth boasting about is that you know God. We understand what God has done for us. Can you discern how vastly different that is to what the false teacher does and essentially how they are boasting about themselves? Uh, that is what we need to look for. The teacher who does not help us understand God's faithful love, his justice and his righteousness, most clearly seen in the cross of Jesus Christ, is not worth listening to. God does not commend such people. Uh, that is not the sort of boasting we should be concerned about. That we should, this is the person that God commends. It's the teacher of whom God says, well done, good and faithful servant. Godly boasting is the boasting that God does to commend those who know him and obey Jesus Christ. In summary, in this chapter, Paul calls the Corinthians to be discerning. He wants them to observe what is in front of them, to deal with these false teachers before he personally comes to discipline them. Look at what is obvious. We live in a corrupt, sinful world which seeks to suppress the knowledge of God. Be discerning. We live in a neighbourhood with other religions and other Christian traditions. Be discerning. We have access via the internet to all sorts of preachers and teachers. Be discerning. Many of us involved in teaching the scriptures here at Northmead Anglican, uh, the staff, gospel team leaders, youth and kids leaders, to name a few. Be discerning. Do those who teach you keep you accountable? That is, are they waging war on your sin? Do they grow you in a knowledge of God and lead you to obey, obey Jesus Christ? Friends, we must discern how our teachers might challenge us, challenge the apostolic gospel that we have and distort that gospel message by which we are saved. Watch their lives and how they might boast. Let me pray for us. Father, help us to look at what is obvious. Guide us in discernment so that we can know you and guard the message about Jesus by which you save us and lead us in obedience. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.